Hi, my name is Jonathan. I am one of the pastors here at Heights, and we're so glad that you found us online. You know, at Heights, it is our desire to love and lead all people to a new life with Christ. And one of the ways that we strive to do that is by posting weekly content at all of the places, on Facebook and on YouTube, on Instagram. We even have our own website where we're constantly posting things as well. If you're checking us out for the first time, you can go to heightschurch.org connect and let us know that you found us. And once again, we're so glad that you're here. So if you have a Bible with you and maybe it's open or on, if you don't mind, let's standing together again. We are going to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning. Uh, and if you're new with us, we do this just to honor the reading of God's word when we read it together publicly. Paul writes in verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians, Paul, Silvinius, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly in the love of every one of you. Uh, for one another it's increasing. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. Verse 5 says, This evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction to those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In verse 9, he says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day, to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. Verse 11, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we believe that this is the word of God that is given to us so we may better worship him. And you may be seated. You know, Paul is writing this letter to a young church, and this is his second letter that we know of to the church of Thessalonica. And in this letter, we see immediately that Paul is uh, praising this church for their growth. Now notice uh, the church growth and the way he is pointing this out is not a growth of budget. It's not a growth of buildings. It's not a growth of baptisms. It's not a growth of attendance. You know, and a lot of times we look at a church growth and we say, okay, is a church growing based on those categories? Their budget, their baptisms, there's buildings, the people in the seats. And Paul says, and those are fine to look at. But Paul says, no, I'm going to press in and I'm going to show you good 
good church growth. And he says, I commend you for your growth. And notice again the growth he's showing us in verse 3. He says, your faith is growing abundantly, and then also the love of everyone that you have for one another is increasing. And he says, church, good job. Your love for God is growing and your love for other people is growing. Now notice how those two are going to always go hand in hand. If your love for the Lord is growing, then your love for people is growing as well. You cannot separate the two. You cannot say, I love the Lord, and my love for the Lord is growing, but I really hate other people. All right? that, that does not work biblically. All right? And you might say, well, what if I don't like them? Well, that's okay. You don't have to like them, but you can still love them. All right? I don't like myself someday. All right? So you can get over that and say, even though I don't like you, you root for the ball team I don't like, or you vote for the political party I don't like, or all those things, you can still say, in the love of the Lord, I love you and I care for you. And so Paul's saying, church, good job. But we notice also very quickly he points out that there's issues they're dealing with. There's some problems that they're facing. We see that in verse 4. And he says, or excuse me, uh, yeah, in verse 4, that there's persecutions happening and there's also afflictions that they are enduring. Now, normally persecutions are going to be outside forces that are persecuting the church, maybe trying to stop the advancement of the gospel. But then he's also noticed there's afflictions, and those afflictions could just simply be the, the pains of life, the pressures of life. Uh, maybe they've lost loved ones in their church. There's economic hardships. There's medical issues. We, we all face those types of afflictions within our, our lives. And so Paul says there's some issues they're dealing with as well. Persecutions and afflictions. Now when, when hard times come upon us, uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one that asks this question. It's how long? How long, Lord? How long are we going to suffer this way? How long, Lord, is this going to last? How long is the, the dry season going to be? How long is the pain or the pressure? How long is the persecution? Lord, how long? And I'm sure that this church was asking that very question that, that Paul's going to answer in our chapter today. How long, Lord? Because here's the, here's the truth I want you to walk away with with chapter 1, and it's going to be on the screen for you. When Jesus comes back, he brings relief to those who love him and retribution to those who reject him. Okay, so, so understand that. I want you to get that this morning. When Jesus comes back, he brings relief to those who love him, but he brings retribution to those who reject him. And so when we pray, Lord, how long? We're praying for Christ to come again, for people who love him, for relief. But also in God's way, and God's justice, retribution for those who reject him. And so this morning, I want to show you four truths from this passage that you can apply in your life. First truth is this, God cares about your holiness. Your holiness matters before God. Okay, your holiness today, your practical, everyday living matters before God. Let's pick up in verse 5. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God 
that you may be considered, now look at that word, worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Verse 11, he says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you, notice that word again, worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God cares about your holiness. Now, when bad things happen and when hard times come, we have trouble seeing what God's doing in those moments. Right? We'll often ask God, what are, what are you doing? Why did you allow this? And, and those questions are really a lot of times unanswerable. In those moments, we can't always answer why God allowed something to happen when he allowed it to happen. And so let me encourage you, when you're in those positions, don't spin your wheels so much trying to figure out why God allowed something. Instead, look at what he's doing. And what he does when we suffer, when we hurt, when there's hard times, is he's always after your holiness. He's always after molding and making you more and more in the image of, of his son Jesus. And so in those pains, in those persecutions, in those afflictions, in those hard times, God says, I'm doing something more in you than what you can see right now. I'm molding you and making you more and more like my son Jesus. I want you to listen to this quote by John uh, Stott. He was a, a, a theologian who lived not long ago, and he says this better than I can, so therefore I'm just going to read what he said about this verse. He says, It takes spiritual discernment to see in a situation of injustice evidence of the just judgment of God. Our habit is to only see surface appearance, and so to make only superficial comments. We see the malice, cruelty, power, and arrogance of evil men who persecute. We also see the sufferings of the people of God who are opposed and ridiculed, boycotted, harassed, imprisoned, tortured, and killed. Why doesn't God do something, we complain? And the answer is God is doing something and will go on doing it. He's allowing his people to suffer in order to qualify them for a heavenly kingdom. He's allowing the wicked to triumph temporarily but his judgment will fall on them in the end. Listen to what John writes in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. And that him there is Jesus, because we shall see him as he is. Your holiness matters before God. God is working in all of us as believers in Jesus, his children, ways for us to become more and more and more like Christ. Let me give you the second truth from this passage. God's justice is just. His justice is just. His justice is 
fair. Let's pick up in verse 6. It says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to notice this. God's justice is always just. It's always fair. But you notice within the passage something that should make you ask this question. How is it fair? Because in verse 6, you see reward. Verse 7, you see justice. For those that believe in Jesus at his appearing, when he comes again, there is reward. Those who do not believe in Jesus at his appearing, there is justice, there is retribution. That when Christ appears for the second time, when he comes again, there is relief, there's rest, there's reward for those who love him. For those who reject him, there's retribution. Now, how is that fair, though? How is it fair for that? Because we all need to step back and remember some some biblical truths in this. The Bible says that we are all sinners. We we all have sinned. But we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Compared to God, we're sinners. Now, I, I know a lot of people will say, well, compared to someone else, I'm not really a sinner right? Don't fall for that trap. Yeah. A lot of times when I, I share the gospel with folks and I get to that point of we're all sinners, I've had people go in the past go, no, 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 hang on, hang on, whoa, 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 no, I, that's not me. I've never stolen anything. I've never been in prison. I've never committed murder, right? And so essentially what they're saying is compared to that person, I'm okay, And the Bible says, no, 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 we don't compare ourselves to one another in that way. We compare ourselves to God. And to a holy God, we have sinned against him because we've all stolen. We've all stolen from his glory. We've all stolen worship that was due his name. We've all committed murder within our hearts and minds when we've hated another person or really wanted to get them back for what they did. Maybe they blew their leaves over in your yard or something, and I just made you angry. We've all done those things. And so the Bible tells us we're, we're all condemned, right? So, so this really gets us, when we talk about the justice and, and fairness of God, It really brings us back to the question of why did God send Jesus to this earth? Because John 3.17 tells us that God sent Jesus not to condemn the world, but that through Christ to save us. And so it says in the Bible that without Christ, there is condemnation. But with Christ, there is no judgment. There is no condemnation. But understand this, that as a believer in Jesus Christ, your sin has been judged. You you didn't just escape that. It, It was judged. God just didn't sweep that under the rug and say, you know, you had a bad day. Strike it up to the case of the Mondays, right? I mean, 
No, 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 no. He judged your sin. I love the story of Barabbas and the Gospels because I think we often read Barabbas wrong. You know, for some of you that are familiar with that, it's, it's the final trial of Jesus, and there he is. He's been flogged and beaten uh, beyond almost recognition, and, and now it's Barabbas on the, on the platform, this known, convicted, terrorist, murder, capital punishment. He's going to the cross. He, he is going to be crucified. And there's Jesus, and Pilate really don't, doesn't want to, to have Jesus crucified, but the hungry, bloodthirsty crowd begins to cry out for Barabbas. And Pilate says, okay. And he lets Barabbas go. But you know where we miss that story? When we read it, is we're Barabbas. That, that's what we are. We're Barabbas. And it's Jesus who took the cross of Barabbas, the, the cross that was due Barabbas, he hung on that one. And the cross that's due, you and I, the punishment, he's taken that upon himself on the cross. This is what makes the gospel such good news, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So you only escape the condemnation of God. You only escape his judgment because of the righteousness of Christ in you. He died for that sin in your life. Don't love the sin more than you love Jesus who died for it. God's just is, his justice is always just. Let me give you the third truth. He brings relief to those who are persecuted. So, so we see that he repays with affliction those who afflict you. Those who reject him, there is justice. But notice also there is relief to those who are persecuted. Verse 7, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. That word relief, you may have in your translation rest. And again, relief, rest from our afflictions, from our persecutions right now is temporary. You may go through a temporary season of relief from afflictions in your life, but we all face those. You know, you, you may have heard the saying before, uh, we are all in one of three categories. You are either going into a trial, you're in a trial, or you're coming out of a trial, right? I mean, we're, we're all three in those, you know, all of us are in one of those three situations in life right now. You're either heading in for a hard period of time, you're in a hard period of time, or you're just coming out of it. And so we know the relief right now, the rest that the Lord provides us in the moments is temporary. But when Christ comes again, that relief, that rest is eternal. It's permanent. It's never ending. Let me give you the fourth truth from the passage is this. Punishment is eternal. The punishment for not believing in Jesus is eternal. Verse 9 says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who believe, because our testimony to you was believed. You see, the punishment that those receive 
who do not believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It is eternal. Now, verse 9 is dripping with controversy. There is a lot of controversy of what Paul wrote in verse 9, and a lot of articles and books and commentaries have been published a lot on what verse 9 says and what it does not say. So let's dig into verse 9 just briefly for a moment. And if this is a moment in the sermon. If your neighbor has been praying for me for a solid 15 minutes, nudge them and say, Amen, Pastor Lee per, per, you know, is proud of you for being a prayer warrior. Tune in with us now. So if they've done that, just go on and just nudge them real quick. Go ahead. Some of you are. All right. There you go. Welcome back. Thanks for your prayers. Because I don't want you to miss this. The punishment is eternal. Now, in verse 9, when you look at it again, it says eternal destruction. And, and, and there are some who take that word destruction and there is a belief and a thought process using this verse and many other verses in the New Testament that would be called annihilationism when it comes to hell. Now, I believe that the Bible teaches that hell is one day going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And that in the lake of fire, in hell, is the eternal conscious punishment of those who are there. They will know that they are there. They will know that they are being punished for all of eternity. But there are some that believe in what's called annihilationism. And they'll take verse 9 and they'll start building this off based on that word destruction. Annihilationism is simply this. That after a period of time in hell that God deems, whether it's 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, whatever, it's your sentence, that God will annihilate you. That you will cease to exist. That you are annihilated in hell. So therefore, it's not an eternal conscious punishment, that it's a punishment for a period of time, and then again, you are annihilated. Now, I, again, I don't believe that. I, I don't believe that that's what the New Testament consistently teaches, that I believe that it is an eternal conscious punishment throughout all of eternity. But notice also in verse 9, there's something else that often brings up quite a bit of discussion and controversy. He says, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Now, that means a lot of people say, okay, well then God's presence is not in hell. That, that God is not in hell. The problem then becomes when we get to Revelation chapter 14 in verse 10. Revelation 14, 10, basically verse 9 says, those who worship the, the Antichrist, those who take the mark of the beast, those who reject Jesus, look at what Revelation 14, 10 says, listen to it. Well, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. All right, so you got 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, Paul saying those that are suffering eternal destruction in hell are away from the presence of the Lord. You got John in Revelation saying, no, those that are suffering in the lake of fire and hell for all of eternity are in the presence of the Lord. And there are people who will say, wait a minute, see there, the Bible contradicts, you can't trust the Bible. It's not true. There's a contradiction. There's not a contradiction there. 
See, the thing is, the word presence in 1 Thessalonians and Revelation are two different Greek words. They're two different words. See, Revelation 14.10, the way John is using the word presence there is the word that would mean distance, right? So you are in my presence. Some of you are in my presence, maybe a couple of feet away or many feet away, right? You're, you're in my presence in a measurable distance. Now, Paul in 1 Thessalonians, he uses the term presence from the Greek word that means face, so it's a, a presence of a person, of a, of a face. Right? So it's meaning this, I believe, that God's presence is in hell. Because we would read all throughout the Bible that God is omnipresent, meaning God is always everywhere throughout all of his creation. That if God is not in one part of his creation, he's violated his omnipresence. But who created hell? Well, the Bible tells us God did. God created hell for Satan and the angels and the demons that had rebelled against him. So if God's presence is not in hell, then he's therefore not omnipresent. So it's this. His presence is there. His face is not. His favor is not. His communication is not. His blessings is not. His grace is not there. His love is not there. It's people in hell who are eternally being punished consciously throughout all of eternity, knowing God's presence is there, but not ever having the opportunity to have that relationship. It's the complete opposite of heaven. Heaven is being in the presence of God, measurably in a distance, within the, his face, being able to see his face, talking with God, worshiping God, loving God, receiving that grace, receiving that blessing, receiving that love, receiving all of that glory. That's heaven. Hell is the complete opposite of all that. So this morning, this should bring up a question for all of us. How does this affect us? You know, when I've been reading over this passage, getting ready for this week over the last couple of weeks, that's been the question just kind of gnawing at me as I get to that part in the text. How does this affect me? What, what, what does this do this morning to, to me and my mind? What does this do in my soul? What is this doing in my heart? What is this causing me to do with my hands? Because it should be doing something within us when we hear these truths from the Bible, that your holiness matters, that God's justice is just, that his punishment is eternal. That he brings relief to those who love him when he appears again. See, it should do something to us when we, we realize that when Jesus comes again, he, he rewards those who love him. And he brings retribution to those who reject him. I think it should remind us of this. Number one, our lives are incredibly short. Our lives are just short. They are but a vapor. You know, now you might think, oh man, well, you know, 80 years old, 90 years old, boy, that's a long life. Not compared to eternity. You know, the Bible says Adam lived over 900 years. Would you want to live over 900 years on this planet? No. But boy, you put 900 years compared to eternity, that's short. Our lives are but a vapor. They are short. You know, there's a man by the name of Walter 
Uh, Walter is a dear friend of mine in our church in Pennsylvania. He was a founding member of that church and been there for over 40 years. Walter was diagnosed with uh, incurable lung cancer and brain cancer when he was uh, in his early 70s. And, and we knew Walter's time was, was coming to an end. And he was in my office one day and we were visiting and laughing like Walter always came in and did. Every Monday morning, Walter came in uh, to visit with me and to tell me everything that was going on, right? And I mean, just a sweet man, loved Jesus. And one day we were sitting there talking and it just struck me funny. And I said, Walter, you know what's interesting? I said, here you are. You know, you're, you're in your early 70s. We, we know, we, we, we all know you're about to go see Jesus here. This cancer you have is incurable. And here I am sitting at 33 and I could die before you. We, we, we know it's, it's going to happen for you. But I could go home today and, and on my way home, somebody run a red light and T-bow my car and that could be it. And we are all looking at you. Your time's coming short, but, but how, my, my time may be shorter than your time. Our lives are short. That reminds us our mission is urgent. Our mission is urgent. When we read a passage such as this, our mission is urgent. That we all should remember this morning the mission of what we do as believers in Jesus Christ and making disciples and getting the gospel out has a renewed sense of urgency when we know and we believe according to the Bible that hell is for eternity for those that do not believe in Christ and that our message is life-saving. We need to remember this morning that that message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it saves lives. When we tell people Jesus saves and he can save you today. So this morning, let me ask you to do three things as ways of action, steps just to take. Number one, identify one person in your life you know who needs Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. I know a lot of times we talk about our, our four-by-four plan, like find four friends and four people who don't know Christ. This morning, I want to just take that down to one. Who is one person you know who needs Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of their lives? Just identify one. Who's your one today that you can pray for, that you can invite, that you can share the gospel with personally? Who's that one person in your life? I want you to be thinking about them here in a moment. Secondly, I want to encourage you to serve. How are you serving today to further the mission of Jesus, to further the gospel? How, how are you serving? Maybe out in the community. How are you serving here within our church? How are you serving? You know, whether it's life groups or it's student ministry, children ministry, whether it's tech team, worship team, how are you plugging into the life of a church and saying, here's how I want to help propel and further the mission of what we do in getting the gospel out to people? So who's that one? Who, who's your one? How are you serving? But let me finally ask you this. How are you giving this morning? How are you giving? See, you're, you're giving makes a difference. When you give, we as a body, we as a church, we can propel the mission of God out. We can do things like fall festival, have vacation Bible schools. We can do life groups. We can do all kinds of different outreaches as a church. When you give, we as a church are able to give to mission work all around the world. 
you realize right now today when you give 10% of everything you give goes to mission work. You are literally helping support missionaries in over 104 countries right now in, this, in, in, in our world. You are helping right now start new churches throughout North America through the North American Mission Board. You're helping revitalize churches. When you give, that also goes to the six seminaries throughout the Southern Baptist Convention. And that helps people that are going to seminary through a Southern Baptist church have a discount. So you are helping by giving, educate the future pastors and missionaries that God's going to call and send out. When you give, you are helping propel the mission of God's kingdom out further. Now, on the reverse side of that, when, when you don't give, you're missing out on that. When you don't give, you're, you're not a part of building God's kingdom in that way. God's not able to use you through that. God's not blessing you through that. And so let me encourage you today. If you're not giving, start. If you've stopped, restart. If you are giving, keep going. Because God uses that giving to help propel the gospel out to more and more people. So today, who's that one that you can identify? How, how are you serving? Plug in to serve other folks and continue to be a giver. Because when Jesus comes back, he brings relief to those who love him and retribution to those who reject him. I want to ask you to bow in prayer right now with me. Head bows, just eyes closed where you are. This morning, I want to ask you to let that truth sink in. When Jesus appears, he brings relief to those who love him. Retribution to those who reject him. Which side will you be on? There's only two. There's no neutral. There's no middle ground this morning. You either believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life or you don't. When Christ appears, he will either reward you with relief or you will experience his retribution. Where are you this morning? Do you stand right now condemned as a sinner or have you escaped that condemnation now and for all of eternity because you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Right where you are. Whether you are in this worship center, whether you are at home watching, I want to invite you right now to make a decision. Today, let that be the day that you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. That you come to Jesus right now as the Lord and Savior of your life. And you say, Jesus, I have sin in my life that I need to turn from. And today, I'm surrendering my life to you as my Lord and Savior. I want to pray and if you are ready today to make that a decision, you can follow along with me in your own words, your own way. Maybe you're just stuck and you say, I don't know what to say. Well, you can just pray, just write in your heart and mind these words. Dear God, I need Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Today I turn from my sin and I surrender my life to Jesus. I believe he has died for my sin and he's risen to give me new life and today I'm ready to follow him friends I want to invite you this morning to continue to pray for those you know in your life just that one person that might need to pray that prayer I want to invite you to continue to serve others 
here within this church and community to help get the gospel out. And I invite you to be a giver today. Your giving makes a difference in kingdom work. Lord, I pray today that we will be a church that desires to see more and more people come into your kingdom because we realize the reality of hell. That we realize the reality of the retribution that you will pay out to those that have rejected you. And Lord, we know your heart is not to have to do that. And so, Father, that's our heart as well, that we don't want to see that happen to our spouse, to our child, to our grandchild, to our friend, our neighbor, our coworker. Lord, we don't want to see that happen to 1.7 billion people on this planet that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us just reach one more person. Help us to be servants. Help us to be givers. So, Lord, your mission goes out. Your word, your gospel that saves continues to go. Lord, because we want to see more and more people worship that beautiful name of Jesus, Lord. That beautiful Savior he is. Lord, thank you for who you are in Christ's name. Amen.